today on Understanding Immigration, the Afghan refugee crisis. So immediately, the U.S. government is expected to bring in 30,000 Afghan refugees who qualify for this program called the Special Immigrant Visa Program, SIV program. And recipients of this visa are generally those uh, from Afghanistan who help the U.S. military in some capacity. So, I mean, it's really critical that whoever we do bring to this country or, or help out in any way are properly vetted. And there's really no excuse to ever bring someone to the United States that hasn't been vetted. The, the security risk is just too high. The cost of resettling one refugee in the United States is equivalent to settling 12 refugees in region. Coming to you from Washington, D.C., you are now listening to FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of FAIR's Understanding Immigration Podcast, everyone. This is Spencer Raley, FAIR's Director of Research, and I am joined today by Matthew Tregesser from our media shop and Preston Hennekins from our lobbying department. President Biden and his administration has been a crisis manufacturing machine so far. The latest crisis, of course, is his appallingly poor handling of our withdrawal from Afghanistan. We've all seen the tragic videos of people falling from airplanes, crowds at the airports, the Taliban conducting Zoom interviews, and American helicopters taking off from the roof of our Kabul embassy, hearkening back to our eviction from Saigon. The crisis has many issues of concern at the moment, of course, but one of the biggest issues facing the United States is how we assist those individuals who help the U.S. military during our time in the country. And ideally, this whole withdrawal would have been planned in advance, of course, but that didn't happen. You know, we didn't make plans and appropriately get, uh, first of all, of course, U.S. citizens out of the country, and then those who assisted us as well. You know, this is all being done in reaction now. So how do we facilitate this critical situation? Now, now I think it's a shame that this even needs to be mentioned, but evacuating American citizens in the country, that, that needs to be our number one priority, period. And it's tragic that that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case right now. I mean, we're seeing some flights consisting of only 20% U.S. citizens, and numerous reports are coming out every day detailing citizens that are unable to even reach the, the airport. And now the Biden administration is saying they expect that some Americans will be left in the country after we completely withdraw. That's just tragic. Now, after that, it is still an important question that we have to figure out is, you know, who else can we help uh, and how do we assist them? You know, what's the best way for us to help those who helped our military over the last 20 years? So, Matthew, I want to start with you here. Let's try to bring some clarification to this topic, if that's possible. Who is in the country right now? What is the administration's plans? And what is the public sentiment on this topic right now? Yeah, so this has been obviously a very delicate and sensitive situation. You know, there's a lot of conflicting messages, a lot of conflicting data out there. And so I think it's important to start out by kind of discussing what we do know uh, so far. So it's important to note, and you uh, referenced this earlier, uh, Spencer, in your intro, that there are still thousands of American citizens in Afghanistan. They haven't been evacuated yet. No one really knows the exact number. Uh, U.S. intelligence experts suggest it could be between 10 and 15,000, which is obviously a, a large number that mm -hmm. should not be remaining in that country. Now, in terms of the Afghan refugee situation, which is obviously kind of the dominating narrative uh, of this situation, so immediately the U.S. government is expected to bring in 30,000 Afghan refugees 
who qualify for this program called the Special Immigrant Visa Program, SIV program. And recipients of this visa are generally those uh, from Afghanistan who helped the U.S. military in some capacity uh, over the past years, including, you know, uh, interpreter roles, translator roles, driver roles, and even, uh, you know, helping with security efforts in Afghanistan. Now, again, that's about 30,000 who are immediately expected to be brought under this program. Now, there will be other avenues, other mechanisms where uh, more of the Afghan population can come to our country. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, experts suggest that this number could actually fall uh, or reach between 100,000 and 300,000, which is obviously a lot bigger than the 30,000 uh, that we know so far. Now, in terms of what I've seen in the media about the situation, you know, the GOP actually seems pretty fractured on this. You know, you have, uh, and Preston, I'm sure you, you can dive into this deeper uh, in, in the episode here, but from what I've seen, there's at least 10 GOP governors all across the country who are uh, welcoming the resettlements, uh, actually in some cases even inviting or asking to invite more uh, Afghan refugees to their states. But then you have another kind of side of the, of the GOP who are saying, well, wait a minute, let's put a break to all this. Let's make sure that we have... Uh, sound vetting. Let's make sure that we're, you know, not bringing anyone to the country, uh, which is practically happening right now. You see uh, these military cargo planes uh, flying into uh, the U.S. and Wisconsin, Virginia, to these military bases. Uh, and basically, you know, not all these people on these planes are SIV recipients or applicants. Uh, so that, you know, creates logistical issues. What happens if they don't qualify for the visa? How long do they have to remain on these bases? So again, a big logistical mess, but uh, you know, this is obviously a very delicate situation. The GOP is really not, there's not uh, a, a united strategy on this and it's a mess to say the least. So, you know, that's kind of an intro to this situation. We'll dive into a lot of these topics in this episode, but uh, I'll leave it at that uh, for now. Right. And you know, one thing I was just looking at here, you know, you're talking about eventually we could be looking at between 100 and 300,000 refugees, SIV applicants, uh, refugee priority two applicants, just, you know, individuals from Afghanistan coming to the United States. I think it's important for us to take a look at this in a historical context as well. You know, in 2019, we saw just over 1,000 refugee arrivals come from Afghanistan. 2018, it was 800. 2017, it was just over 1,000. At no point in, since 1990 have we seen that total exceed 3,000. We're talking about potentially increasing this annual total by, what, perhaps 100-fold, 300-fold? So this isn't just, you know, tacking on additional in individuals to, you know, our refugee program as it is. We're talking about massively increasing it. Last year we saw, what, the ca- refugee cap was 15,000? Mm-hmm. And we're talking hundreds of thousands now, not counting those refugees that are going to come from other countries right. as well. So this is a massive increase during a time when immigration's at record highs, when the border is being flooded with illegal aliens. It's just you know opening up floodgates even more. So Preston, I want to turn to you here. I know the situation is changing by the hour right now, but what is the Biden administration's plan at this point? Who are they planning to evacuate? Maybe bring a little bit more you know clarity to that. Where are they bringing them, and how do they plan to vet these individuals, or do they? So it's right now. It's it's like you said. It's a, a difficult situation on the ground. But the the Biden administration, the Pentagon, and the intelligence agencies have kind of an idea of the people who they need to need or and want 
to get out of the country uh, already. You know, there have been reports of these refugees arriving at military bases in Texas and in Virginia, right. across the country. And, and they're being held there right now until the government can really decide what to do with them, because in many ways, they are kind of in a limbo period. They, they In some instances, they haven't actually been vetted through the full SIV program yet, mm-hmm. or they haven't formally applied for refugee status. So the government got them out of Afghanistan and just needs somewhere to put them and the easiest thing is to put them on federal land in military bases. Right. In terms of how they plan to vet a lot of these people, that's that's kind of a tricky subject because, you know, for instance, our embassy, when they were given orders to evacuate, they were also told to destroy all documents. Many of those documents included correspondence between the Afghans that were helping us. So it's really a black hole of information and we're largely going off of the word of the Afghans that are either still in Afghanistan or here at these military bases. Uh, we're going off the word of of our own military officials, our own intelligence officials. But there's really no doc there's really not a no. lot of documentation there. And it's no. um, particularly with those who worked with the intelligence agencies, you know, you don't necessarily document who your sources are because God forbid if that was found out, that person would right. likely be killed. So it, it's not as, you know, it's very easy to say, well, you know, you know, bring them all over. We know, you know, you really are kind of going off of their word. Mm-hmm. And then I, I, I suppose in some instances, the word of higher up U.S. officials. But, you know, what we do know is that Biden, President Biden has committed to withdrawing everyone out of out of Afghanistan by August 31st. Uh, the Taliban has said that they will not allow anyone to leave the Kabul International Airport after August 31st. Uh, and in, for this episode, this is intriguing because they've said they're not going to allow Afghan, Afghans to mm-hmm. leave. So we might say, oh, we have space, you know, we're, we've told our refugee agencies to expect 50,000 paroled Afghans, but if they can't leave, if they can't leave the country, there's, you know, how is that going right. to materialize? But exactly. Um, again, there, there, there really is, because everything is happening so fast, because of the, the chaos that has gripped Afghanistan and, and the really hasty withdrawal that has occurred uh, from the airport, it's, it is not entirely possible to vet these people in country before they arrive to the United States. Uh, that goes for potential SIV applicants. That goes for for um, standard refugee admissions. And that even goes for the people that the Biden administration plans to parole. Uh, there, there's been some talk uh, of flying people um, to Guam. This is something that the U.S. has done in the past. It's called the Pacific Option, where if we don't have enough you know, refugee slots or the SIV program isn't moving fast enough. What the government will do is is transfer people to Guam, which is a U.S. territory. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we did this with Vietnam, and we did this with Iraqi Kurds in 1996. Uh, so that has been discussed as well. Um, but but by and large, most of these people will make it to the United States uh, once they're on a plane and outside of Afghanistan. I find it very hard to believe that the U.S. government, um, particularly with the current administration, is going to remove these people to Afghanistan. So, 
You know, uh, Spencer, I'll, I'll kick it to you to talk a little bit more about the SIV program and about some of the fraud that, that is present in that program. Um, just, again, touching on the reality that we don't have documentation for many of these people. Most of it was destroyed when we when we abandoned the embassy. <laughs> right, right. That's a very good point. And vetting for the SIV program, vetting for refugees, it's a very similar process, you know, it, it, and technically it is essentially the same process. And, you know, we, we saw reports that for refugee applicants in recent years from Iraq, there have been more than 4,000 instances of fraud uh, discovered. And many of these were discovered after individuals had already been brought into the United States, which is quite concerning. You know, and we're already seeing, I've already seen one, at least one news report of an individual that's been flown out of Afghanistan in recent weeks. And now they're going, oh, wait, we're finding out this person has ties to ISIS. So wow. how many more of these situations are we going to figure out? You know, and, and, and looking at, you know, the comparison between Iraq and Afghanistan, I think it's very important also to note that Iraq was a police state before we went in there. And... Unfortunately, I mean, I, I, fortunately for our vetting purposes, unfortunately for the people in Iraq, police states actually keep very good records on their political dissidents and opponents because they like to keep tabs on them. We were able to go in and collect a lot of this intel, and it helped us actually with vetting you know, opponents to the Saddam regime, those that often ended up becoming refugees to the United States. Afghanistan doesn't have any of that. First of all, it's a very tribal culture. You have a lot of different tribes within the country that kind of have their own leaders and essentially almost their own government. There has not been any really functional centralized government in Afghanistan for many, many years now. And because of that, there's no central databases that we can pull from. In fact, the State Department acknowledged this in a report from June of last year noting that fraud is a much bigger issue for Af- Afghan refugee applicants than it is for other countries in the Middle East because there is no paper trail they can use. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes they might be able to get an interview from a tribal leader, and that's about the best you can do. So in other words, these things are very open to fraud, very open. They're based on us basically listening to someone saying, hey, are you lying? do we think you're lying or not? You know, and so so that's that's a very significant issue, and we we also see, unfortunately, you know, a lot of allegiances in these in, in in Afghanistan's tribal culture are very very fluid. You know, individuals will be on one side one day and, and another side the next day. So again, it, it can be very difficult to properly vet individuals or to be sure that their allegiances lie where they say they are. You know, just because they were on our side 10 years ago doesn't necessarily mean that they are today. Mm-hmm. And as an aside, that fluidity is why the Taliban was able to overtake the country so quickly is because... Right. Whatever, they, yeah. ha- whatever happened to Afghanistan's military that well, we've no, been training for the, so many years? You with, know, a lot of these individuals are now Taliban fighters. Yeah, the, the culture <laughs> there is that you give, you give, you arrive at the village, you speak to the tribal elders, and you say, look, we're here... Anyone who surrenders, we will let go and be free. If anyone fights, we'll fight to the death. And that, that's largely how they were able to sweep through the country with a right. really a, a skeleton crew of, of actual fighters. But when you're, when, when you're dealing with those kind of cultural dynamics, that's something that 
in the West, we just did not understand. We're like, why no. would they not fight? And it's like, because it wasn't in their interest. And that's not how they, that's not how their culture works. Right. And oftentimes you'll see, you know, those who may even be a part of the Afghanistan military, their allegiances lie first and foremost to their tribal clan. So when a leader of that clan says, hey, we have chosen peace with the Taliban versus having our entire clan wiped out, the allegiances for that military member is going to change uh, to adhere to what their clan says. You know, and it's just a different dynamic than I think what most of us in the West, and especially in the United States, really identify to. You know, I guess you could say it would be akin to if, you know, a foreign army took over your state or even your city or something, you know, is your allegiance to the United States or is it to whatever, you know, whoever is running that city or your family at the time? It's just a completely uh, different dynamic. And so I think it's important to keep that in mind. And... You know, we're seeing reports now that that the Biden administration is wanting to bring 50,000 individuals into the United States without even completing the visa process, whether that's for, uh, you know, special immigrant visa or for getting refugee status. And so looking at how difficult it is to vet refugees from, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq, the Middle East on a good day, we're talking about a mass number of, of migrants who aren't vetted at all coming into the United States. You know, that's concerning. You know, in 2017, we saw that nearly a third of all FBI terrorism cases, uh, active terrorism cases, involved someone who came to the United States as a refugee. And, you know, FBI Director James Comey at the time acknowledged that a large number of these individuals, quote, infiltrated our country via the refugee program, end quote, while others were targeted and groomed by terrorist organizations after they came here. So, I mean, the refugee program on a good day is not ironclad, you know, in terms of security. In fact, far from it. So, I mean, it's really critical that whoever we do bring to this country or, or help out in any way are properly vetted. And there's really no excuse to ever bring someone to the United States that hasn't been vetted. The, the security risk is just too high. Well, even to add on to that, I, I think you guys uh, may have seen this Washington Times article talking about the SIV acceptance rate from this year. And in the first three months of the year, it was only a 16% acceptance rate. So 84% of applicants for this special visa program were denied. And I, I would assume a lot of that has to do with fraud, incomplete records, uh, national security concerns. So, I mean, you explained it very well there, Spencer, but I mean, this program is not a program that's free of bad people. It, it, it's concerning because, you know, if you're in Afghanistan and you want to come to the United States, either for, you know, economic reasons, for legitimate, you know, persecution, uh, because you're a part of a legitimate persecution situation or perhaps for nefarious reasons, why not at least put in an application for, you know, refugee status, SIV, uh, you know, visa, you know, one of these programs and, you know, maybe you can slip in. Maybe you can, yeah, like you said, either commit fraud or others just put in the application and we'll see. Mm -hmm. Well, these individuals are winning the lottery now because, like you mentioned, you're talking more than – potentially more than 80% of the individuals that are going to be flown over here now would have had their SIV application yeah. rejected, either because they committed fraud or they just didn't meet the criteria and they were kind of throwing a Hail Mary exactly. pass and a why not apply anyway. Uh, That's the thing is that there, and people forget this, is that in any conflict, there are a large number of people who are just strictly neutral. And mm -hmm. if this program is being offered and you have a chance to leave Afghanistan for the United States... Even if you had no dog in the fight, 
you're you're going to sign up and and say that you worked with the government and my documents were destroyed or I don't have them anymore. And again, it gets back to it's the, you know, their word versus our word. And in a war situation, it's very confusing. It's, you know, I think that a lot, that probably accounts for, I would say, most of the rejections is that these people apply. And then you look at it, it's like, we don't know this person from Adam. Right. We've never met them before. Uh, but but that's that's how these things work. And what, you know, again, it's there. You can't fault them for trying if because, like you said, Spencer, that's winning the lottery. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and I know a lot of people are just going to say, well, why is this an issue? Why can't you just fly hundreds of thousands of people over to the United States? Well, I mean, aside from thinking long term how that's going to impact our economy, how that's going to impact, you know, society in the United States, you know, we've talked about issues with vetting, issues with national security. And I think it's also important just to note logistics. Because we're kind of getting a mini view of that right now yeah. with, with you know, all of these thousands of individuals, you know, flooding the Kabul airport, yeah. you know, the flights coming out. And that is leading to, you know, these tragic videos of people throwing babies over razor wire, of people unable to get past um, checkpoints, you know, confusion, mass confusion. You're talking about logistics alone. You're starting to see why vetting is important, mm-hmm. why a solid application process is important mm-hmm. versus just if you can get to the airport, we'll bring you to the United States, sort of like what we're seeing on the southern border. If you can get to the border and get right. across the border, we'll bring you to the United States. You know, forget about the consequences, whether they be, you know, COVID or national security or mm-hmm. gang related. You know, this policy that we're seeing coming from the Biden administration time after time, which is essentially just worry about it later. Worry about it later. Yeah. You know, punt the consequences yeah. down the road. Those consequences are going to come home, and that's why it's so important that these things are planned, properly planned, especially when it comes to situations like immigration. You know, we have to properly plan them because we're not, at this point, we're not even thinking about how do we adjust these individuals into American life? Where are they going to work? Mm-hmm. Are we going to give them welfare? Where are they going to live? You know, we already, you know, we're already seeing issues like urban sprawl at, you know, record levels where having water issues in states that you normally wouldn't think would have issues with water, like Florida. It's because these things aren't properly planned Mm -hmm. over time, and that has to be a part of the process. Right now, I was just reading a news story this morning, the Dulles Expo Center, which is right by Mm. Dulles International Airport. It just looks like an old Walmart or something, and it's just chuck full of these individuals right now because they don't know what to do with them. Right. Like, where are you going to put them? And and I think that that brings up a great point, too, from the humanitarian aspect of of resettling refugees in region versus in the United States. The yes. U.S. Committee for Refugees and Immigration has has said before, the cost of resettling one refugee in the United States is equivalent to settling 12 refugees in region. So we have to think about that because, sure, it feels good to bring them to the U.S., and it, and it, and it does feel good to see them in our, in our communities and, and, and right. help them and, and volunteer with them. But... If you are talking about helping as many people as as possible, getting as many people as possible out of Afghanistan and into a better situation, it makes much more sense to settle them in region. And mm-hmm. one of the best illustrations that I've ever heard of this is from Mark Krikorian from the Center for Immigration Studies, where he says, imagine that there are a group of you know 25 people that are drowning in the middle of the open ocean, and there's, you know, you can either 
toss them, you know, you can either give them a life raft that's, you know, not necessarily fantastic, but everyone can get on board, everyone mm -hmm. can be saved, no one's going to drown in the open ocean. Or you can pick, you know, three of those people and give <laughs> each of them a yacht. That, that is essentially what, what U.S.-based resettlement looks like, because instead of helping as many people as you can get out of a horrible situation, you are picking and choosing who gets left behind mm -hmm. so that a select few can live in prosperity in the United States. Right, and it's not even necessarily accurate that these individuals are going to come to the United States and live prosperous, happy lives. In fact, we did a report a few years ago that found that the vast majority of refugees are making less than $15 an hour five years after they enter the United States. They're not adapting well to culture. Most are having trouble learning the language. Most have j just a really difficult time figuring mm -hmm. out how the culture works. Because again, they didn't plan over a period of years to come to the United States. They didn't study the language. They didn't study the culture. They were brought here on a, you know, just uh, this process is often rapidly moving. You know, we've, it's, it, it's just an undeniable fact that individuals who are resettled in countries closer to home, you know, they know the language most likely. Exactly. The they are more familiar with the culture. They can fit into probably a similar, you know, job to the field they were in before. And there have also been studies that have shown that individuals that are resettled closer to home, uh, a lot of these were, you know, focusing on Latin America, but the same is also true with the Middle East. Individuals that are closer at home often stay more involved in trying to change the culture in their home country. And quite frankly, that's what, whether we're talking about, you know, Afghanistan or Iraq or even in Central America, South America, you know, El Salvador, in Guatemala, these individuals need, you know, good upstanding citizens, oftentimes citizens with means, that's what refugees often end up being, to be interested in instigating change in their home country. And we often see that's more likely if the individual stays closer to home. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's it's not necessarily even that we're, we are choosing the best option for these individuals by bringing them all to the United States. So it's it's just overall a, a situation that needs to properly be considered. Proper planning needs to take place, you know, just from a myriad of different angles. Mm -hmm. And even, uh, you know, we talked about kind of this idea of resettling uh, these Afghan refugees and, you know, neighboring countries or areas to Afghanistan. But what's interesting is in Qatar, there is an, a hangar right now housing Afghan refugees temporarily. But there was a report yesterday by the New York Post saying that they've described the conditions as a living hell with feces, urine, and rats. And so if the Biden administration is going to implement a, a strategy like this using, you know, our military bases in the Middle East, using uh, partners in that region, you know, we can't be, you know, putting people in these types of conditions. You know, it's an unsustainable system. It goes to show you that maybe that, that we need more help, more partners engage in this effort. I mean, if, mm -hmm. if we're just putting every single person into this hangar, and worrying about the situation later, I mean, and of course it's going to end up like this. I mean, it's, it's, it's terrible. And let's be realistic here. Other countries in the Middle East that can take refugees need to do so because they're not, <laughs> they're not innocent dogs in this fight. You know, they, 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 share, they, they share some of the responsibility for what's gone on in Afghanistan. Yeah, where, where are the NATO East countries, well. the members? Exactly. You know, and, and I, well, mean, I think Saudi Arabia would be a fantastic option because that's the entire reason that we were in Afghanistan <laughs> in the first place is because of Al-Qaeda's anger that we stayed in Saudi Arabia. So maybe maybe Saudi Arabia could step up, step up to the plate 
you know, they, they're building new projects every, every year. I'm sure they could use some extra helping hands, give those people a good living wage and, you know, finally rise up to their, what they claim to be, which is, you know, the, the Sunni, you know, regional superpower. <laughs> right. So, I mean, you've, you've got all of these countries surrounding the area that bear a lot of responsibility for what's gone on there over the last 20 to 50 years. We need to expect them to share some of this weight instead of yeah. us taking it all on ourselves. And, mm-hmm. you know, this is also true for some of our other Western allies who are involved in this effort. You know, at this point, it just seems like it's a reactionary effort by the Biden administration to just import the entire problem to the United States and we'll deal with it later. And it's mm-hmm. just going to create additional crises and it's going to inevitably lead to tragedy. Mm-hmm. And essentially what we're doing is creating a whole bunch of new mistakes to try to cover for a big mistake you could argue that we've made, you know, at least recently, if not over large portions of the last 20 years. Well, here's the other element, too, that we haven't really discussed is, you know, with, with the Biden border crisis still raging on, and let's not forget that there's been no signs of that stopping anytime soon. But, you know, a lot of these Central Americans, the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, they're still using our asylum system for trying to seek uh, better wages, better jobs, and that's not what our asylum system is for, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, this is clogging up the asylum system where Afghan refugees, people who are actually being persecuted by the Taliban, are not going to be able to to use. I mean, they're going to be pushed to the back of the line. If nothing else, they're just going to live in a state of, you know, insecurity for years because they don't know how these court cases are going to end up. Right now, the the, the backlog of immigration uh, cases, I believe, is over 1.2 million deep and that's growing by you know 100,000 or more every month and now we're talking about adding potentially you know a quarter million or more more individuals into this process that are going to need to have you know cases adjudicated yeah. they're going to you know the ones that have been found to have some form of fraud they're going to their cases are going to have to be heard we're adding more to our plates than what we can currently handle and yeah. it's just going to make life difficult for not just our federal officials who are shifting through this, but for the migrants as well. You know, it's not fair to anybody. You know, another question I wanted to ask you guys quickly here um, is I know I mentioned earlier in the episode that some experts suggested about 100,000 to 300,000 Afghan refugees are expected to come within the next few years to our country. But, you know, let's think about it. Afghanistan is a population of 38 million people. Mm -hmm. I mean... Under our U.S. asylum laws, couldn't the vast majority of that population qualify for asylum in our country? I mean, they're being persecuted, likely based on their race, religion, nationality, political opinion, membership to a particular social group. Yeah. I mean, that's a large number. Again, though, the, the Taliban has said that they will not let any Afghans leave the country after the 31st. And unless you're going to walk yeah, that's, to, an, you know, yeah. to a neighboring country... Oh, really? The only way, Pakistan. yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. The only way you could get out is through Kabul Airport. So, I mean, certain, no, certainly, the if you're looking at based on our asylum laws, if if they could get here, they would almost certainly qualify. But yeah. but again, you're talking about a country on the other side of the world with one international airport that is going to be controlled by a group that doesn't want people leaving. And and by and large, I think. In Afghanistan, unless you live in Kabul or one of these other larger cities, 
you're you're not you're not going to have the means to. You're to largely leave. stuck there. You don't have the means. And and again, to like leave by foot, you're either crossing massive deserts or over practically impassable mountain passes. Mm-hmm. But I do think this is an important point. And you know, we've already seen the willingness of the Biden administration to increase refugee caps, you know, tenfold or more. You know, are they going to continue to do this to 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 meet you know expectations that they created? You know, as a result of this crisis in Afghanistan, or are they finally going to accept reality and say, "Hey, we ha- we have to continue to honor our refugee caps. We have to try to get a handle on this situation." All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. I hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and perhaps learned something new about this ever-changing, ever-growing crisis. Just as a reminder, we release new episodes every other Monday. For any new listeners to this podcast, we invite you to check out our series on your favorite platforms such as Google, Apple, and Spotify to see what other topics we've discussed that may interest you. We are now at 40 episodes that cover important topics that impact your daily lives. So there's a lot for you to listen. Uh, if you're new to this topic, there's a lot for you to learn. So we invite you to go check out that library and hopefully continue to follow us as we release new episodes every other week. Hope each and every one of you are continuing to stay safe and sound in these chaotic times. Until next time, this has been Understanding Immigration, presented by FAIR.